Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 40 is Clive Farrington. He started out as the bass player, songwriter in a band called Bow Leisure, but he's much better known for his subsequent work in the late 80s band When in Rome. You are listening to their big hit, The Promise, 1988 which eventually revitalized his career when it was used in the 2004 film Napoleon Dynamite in the closing sequence. This is the only song Clive is typically asked about. He even wrote a book called Confessions of a One-Hit Wonder, The Promise and the Aftermath. But we're going to be talking about two songs from his 2013 solo album, Independence. The songs are Fall and Just Another Love Song, which were recorded with producer-slash-keyboardist John Brooks. And then we'll be looking back at that When in Rome album, the song called Something Going On. Close things out, we'll listen to a single released in 2016 called Lost, parentheses, Driving All Night, which features Andrew Mann, the other singer from When in Rome. And Clive talks a little bit about that two-singer lineup, why he would do that. The other member of When in Rome was Michael Florial, who's the keyboardist, now living in Texas, with his own band that capitalizes on When in Rome. So Clive talks a little bit about business difficulties, having a UK unit and a US unit, both drawing on the same material. And we talk about fame and electronic music production. Clive recorded this from his backyard. And you can hear some very energetic birds in the background of the entire interview. And the occasional plane. If you want to hear more of Clive's music, go to soundcloud.com. Look him up by name or look up Rome Never Fell. He's got many tracks posted there, recorded since the When in Rome days. I will have played a little bit of The Promise, of course, yeah, which you've been asked to speak about ad nauseum, so you don't have to do it today. Oh, good. <laughs> I will point folks, in fact, to an interview I just listened to where you went through in painstaking detail everything you could remember from 1987. But we should get pretty rapidly to the more recent album, Independence. So that was released 2013, right? That was your first main release. I know your SoundCloud page has a lot of stuff from the interim. So was this songs put together from many years? Where did this first song fall? Like, when did this enter the picture? I was managing a studio in a place called Alderley Edge, in where I'm from in South Manchester. And it was being built by a company called The Studio People. And I met this guy called John Brooks because he was having a studio built by the same people just right around the corner from where I lived. So I just dropped my card off one night to the studio and said, if you want to get together, if you want to do some work, give us a call. And six weeks went by and then he called around at my house just out of the blue. Then I went to visit the studio, had a look round. It just felt right straight away. You know, we started working on the track straight away and I'd got this new piece of software and it had this really nice loop as a sample in it. And that was the song Deliver. Yeah. So we used a loop from that and that all the songs came from just that one song. We just flowed and flowed and flowed. It was just a great experience. So any introductory words about this song in particular, what it's about, stylistic elements, what were you shooting for here before we actually play it for the folks? This song, it reminded me uh, and it reminded a lot of people of the intro to a film. And I actually made a video to it. I don't really have a favorite on the album. I think I've always wanted to write music for film and Fall was the closest thing to that. So that's the reason why I like that one. Was 
So given that you are a fiddling with the computer guy, programming the drum parts guy, yeah. John is also a keyboardist. How does that interaction work as a practical matter? Are you sitting at the same computer? Are you doing stuff? Yeah, we are. We okay. sat right next to each other and an idea or, uh, you know, I'll ask John to go through his loop section and, and go through a load of loops. And then if something makes my ears pick up, then we'll use it. And that's exactly how it worked. Apart from that first track, because that came from a loop that was already established. All the other tracks came from loops that John and I searched through his um, vast amount of software that he's got there. You know, I mean, John's got every piece of software that you can imagine, you, you know, and with loads of loops that he's collected over time and, and that I've collected over time. Some of the loops we made up as well. If we couldn't find a loop for uh, a certain track, I'd program them on the drum machine or on a oscillator or whatever, you know. We use loads of different forms of doing things. One of the recurring sounds in here is that my note is banging on a steel fence with a lot of reverb that, you know, it's more gentle than that description sounds. Yeah, yeah. But do you know where in particular was that something that was in the head first or something you stumbled across, like a distinctive sound like that that kind of makes the song what it is? Mainly by accident, really. And I guess it's because I was always into Gary Newman and, you know, I've been into been into punk, I like industrial music, and they're always those sounds. And you know, if you listen to Flock of Seagulls, Photograph of You, they've got that down, down, that sound. Drum pads have always been a favorite of mine. You know, like instead of using real drums, I quite like using pads because you can use any kind of sample from a pad. Well, yeah, both these songs from Independence, they have these layers in the section that, you know, if you're playing a drum kit, well, you can switch it up a little bit, you can add a little ride, but pretty much the snare is the snare. 
But here you've got three different things that are acting as the snare that you can kind of enter different sections by or, you know, have that fence sound on the four of every every other measure or something like that. Yeah, I guess that's what gives it its sound. And I didn't even realize that. I've always wanted an album where you can tell who has done the tracks. You can tell it's the same band because I think that the When in Rome album that could be a many, many different bands because there's so many different styles on, on the When in Rome album. Ah, you know, for people that are not into electronics, that's usually the criticism is, oh, so you got a drum machine. So you played one of the presets. Like, no, no, no. This is very carefully constructed. So just the idea of, I want to have stereo footsteps that are jumping back and forth. Again, is that something that's in the head first and you try to create that? Or is that something you're more or less stumbling across? It comes again from the always wanted to write music for film. And uh, the Foley part of the film that this, in fact, I've just done the reason why I'm in L.A. right now is I've just written a song for a movie. And it's the first time I've been in any kind of situation where I've, I've actually written a song specifically for a movie. And I actually watched the movie before any of the sound effects were put on, any of the music we put on. It was a fascinating experience because, you know, I didn't get the movie until the music and the Foley stuff was put on it. And did they let you use the Foley people? Or <laughs> that's a different room. No, well, no, not not for my track. No, that Fall was written specifically. I mean, if you think about Fall, a lot of people have said to me it could be the theme to a Bond movie. It would have been great if they'd have used it for Skyfall. And it was written about the same time that that movie came out. And you know, when we were listening to it back, we think, oh yeah, yeah. Although Adele did the soundtrack to that, but she did a great job of that as well. But it does sound like the soundtrack to a, a Bond movie. Well, and it's also got this just immediate, again, just that intro once you've, you're done with the sound effects, the main piano part that comes in that we've got triplets, but we've got a very distinctive, you know, you could play with one finger melody that's on the top of it, that that's what cuts through. The triplets are just to make it richer. Absolutely. And that comes from the Promise days, because that, that was a, such a, a very simple melody that came out of the blue right in the middle of the night, sung into it or hummed into a little uh, cassette recorder and then copied on piano. And that was very much the same for that. And I guess it shows the influence from the When in Rome, especially the Promise. You know, I, th- I think that if you think of that piano line, it's very it's similar in its way. Like, yeah. The intro to Fall is very similar in timing wise it's it's similar notes wise it's not so similar but but it's got the same kind of feel now again you said you just were with john next to him at the computer putting these things together but in terms of the actual melody you've also described your songwriting process as you know i'm just off somewhere humming which it's great now that phones have little recorders in them yeah absolutely (laughs) that was always i had to carry a walkman around before that recordable walkman is it even conceivable that in a well sterile but a studio environment you could actually come up with a nice melody like this or is that just definitely something you'd come in with beforehand the way it used to work with me is i I always has worked with me is i I get my ideas at like five o'clock in the morning and i lived at the time i was staying with my parents in south manchester which is about it's about 12 miles away from the studio from where we were working so i i'd get up really I'd, i'd hum that melody into my phone as you say and then i'd be getting really excited get on the motorway drive up to the studio all excited and play the melody to john and then of course john then puts his touch on it and it makes it sound incredible and that's the way most of the songs worked there were some of course that we worked together completely from scratch on in, in the studio mainly it came from melody ideas that i dreamt overnight and took into the studio and recorded on my phone it was fantastic recording with john because we didn't really argue about anything there was no no i don't like that there was no oh, no, that's not a great idea. You know, even if it wasn't a great idea, I mean, obviously there were some ideas that weren't so great, but even if it wasn't, we went around it and John worked it so it was great. So the little classical guitar things, is that still samples or did you actually put a guitar in here? That's John playing on keyboard, the guitar. We don't have a guitarist that plays that well. And it's strange how, how what a natural combination that seems to be is having this classical guitar sound, even if it's not a real guitar, coming out yeah. of this. I mean, I think it says a lot about the sort of timbres that you're using. It's electronics, but the difference between the production on here and the When in Rome stuff or anything else from 1988 
is that that stuff, it's, I don't know, it's more trebly. It's just part of the way it's mastered. But, you know, you just get much lusher, higher bitrate, I guess, samples here now. Yeah, the quality of the software has gone sky high. We, I mean, we started with the Pro 24 and stuff. And of course, there was no software used on the When in Rome album. It was all, well, the nearest we got to digital was Fairlight. We were using a lot of Fairlight synthesizer on that first album. When you were programming Drum Machine, right? You, you had the Lin or something? Well, the, the initial demo was done on a little boss, boss machine. And then we hired a, a Lin drum for the studio. And then I reprogrammed it in the studio. That was another thing that came from the head. Before we get sucked up in 80s production values, which will be our third song, let's put the second song on the table. So it's another one from the same album, Just Another Love Song, starts much more orchestral, but then you get to the techno part pretty quickly here. Do you have any introductory words about what this one is about? Again, it was written with film in mind as a more of a sci-fi point of view, if you like. I actually did a video to this as well, and it's, more, it's a lot of filmic stuff. And I'm into dance music as well, so what I always wanted to do, I mean, there are a few dance-style tracks on the Independence album, because I am into dance music. I worked a lot with Flip and Phil, if you know of Flip and Phil. They did a load of dance remixes in the 90s. They had a hit with Kung Fu Fighting, as a, a, they call themselves, Bus Stop. So I worked a lot with them and, and got really into dance music. And I guess just another love song is my getting that off my chest, if you like. Climbing, climbing, 
a more traditional club sound here on this one with your high little, it seems those kind of keyboard parts, like I can't even, does Andrew play that kind of stuff with his hands or is that purely only a sound that comes out by at least having the delay programmed in so that you're really playing cha, 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 and it's going. But he's playing that. And of course, a little bit of a delay on that. John Brooks, He's such a great keyboard player. He can do almost anything. And I, I'll say, can you give me that? Blah, blah, blah. And he'll come up with, you know, it was such a brilliant, brilliant process because it, it didn't take as long to go through it. You know, it didn't take us half a day to find the sound. It took him like at most three minutes to find the sound that we were both looking for. Well, he's a classically trained pianist to start with. So working with somebody that's classically trained, it was such a joy. And it's the first time really that I've written anything with somebody who's classically trained. Well, at least he got to do it once and then cut and paste it because just doing that for three minutes, I would imagine your wrists would not like that. Well, I don't know, John. Quite good. I worked him really hard. I said, we're not cutting and pasting anything. We're doing it all. Okay. <laughs> no, we did. We, of course we did. You get it right for one verse and it's right for the next. But a lot of the main piano playing is actually played from start to finish. Well, and that's kind of the great thing about both these songs is that you've got this contrast within the keyboard between the nice legato stuff and the programmed sounding stuff, whether or not it's actually programmed or not. Like having the fake acoustic guitar in there, that that's just, you know, you've got another vocal role being played. But then speaking of the actual vocal, so the chorus here, well, it would sound very repetitive, but your vocals, you know, the harmonies just make it deserve to be that long, right? Deserve to repeat 16 times or whatever it is. So is this basically trial and error that you're just running a bunch of tracks? How are you constructing vocal harmonies here? We put the main vocal down first, of mm-hmm. course, and then we'll be listening to it back in the control room. And I'll be singing along to it in the control room. Ah. And we'll go, wow. Ah. There's the harmony, there's the harmony there at that point. So I'll go straight back into the vocal booth and, and put the harmony down. And then I'll come back in again, find there's a harmony, another harmony for somewhere else, go back into the vocal booth. So it's constructed very methodically in that way, if you like. What was really great about John as well was that he actually worked out harmonies on the piano as well. When I couldn't think of them, there's sometimes when you can't actually think of a harmony. Most harmonies come natural, but John would work them out on the piano and then I'd sing along to whatever notes he worked out as as a harmony. Right, yeah. If you're thinking in terms of thick chords, Steely Dan or something comes to mind. Like that those are not harmonies that just appeal, that you would just find yourself singing along that line. No, it's something that you're basically, yeah, so combining those two things, the more intuitive and the more music theory driven thing seems to, fills it out. So this gets pretty, especially as you're repeating more at the end and you're adding more sort of vocal improvisations. Do you get to a point where you've got too much and then like kind of go through and, okay, what actually makes sense here? Okay, there are two little things happening pretty much at the same time here. Let me take one of them out. Like, is there that kind of editing? That was the way that the When in Rome album was done. Ah. But this, we recorded pretty much as it went. You know, there was no, we didn't record anything. I, I didn't want to get into that situation where we got loads of tracks and, and then we have to go through them afterwards, you know, and go, oh yeah, we like that one. We don't like that one. We like that one. We don't like that one. We recorded as we went and we kept it exactly as, if it sounded crap straight away, we'd just get rid of it straight away and work something that really did work. So it wasn't a case of having loads and loads of, even with the music, Thank the Lord. We were um, lucky enough to have come together and and everything worked out unintentionally as well. I mean, it wasn't like we went in there and said, we're not going to put loads of tracks down and and then sort it out afterwards. I didn't really want to get into that production situation where, you know, you're having to go through loads of different things and keep one, keep get rid of another. Or did you find with some of these, like you're halfway into the arrangement and what if we just speed it up by four beats? Like, was there, which I guess you could probably just do that. Yeah, absolutely. Some of that as well. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's not just like we're recording everything at 120 because that's the magic dance beat. Oh, (laughs) magic dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I forget which ones are. I don't think that, I think there's got to be some of the 120 on there, but I didn't really think, of course, with When in Rome, we were always trying to find what the magic ingredient was for the promise because that was the biggest hit for When in Rome. And if we'd have written, if we'd have been a bit more savvy, I think we would have written a, a couple more at 120 
and, and put a couple of you know nice little piano lines at the front of them and had a few more hits but we wanted to be so diverse on that first album that we kind of lost our way a little bit on that I think and that's the reason why we really had that one big hit it really stands out when you were, like for instance on Saturday I went to see the Lost 80s tour at Microsoft Theatre and uh, Howard Jones was on Tony Hadley was on Martin Fry ABC was on and you know when you listen to all of their songs they're like a medley of one song you know they sound the songs don't sound the same but the actual sound is the same the ambience of the, of the songs are the same and that's where when in rome got because it was democratic we were a democratic band when in rome there was three of us and we all had our own say on what we were doing on the album and it really should have been just one person saying this is the way it's going to go and that's why spandau ballet were as big as they were because gary kemp was the main songwriter he wrote all the songs and they all sound like they come from the same band whereas when in rome sounds like it comes from three people with three different heads well since we're kind of transitioning to the third song something going on from the when in rome album so i would think in this kind of high pressure situation i know you already had the demo that you'd done yourself you know of the promise but when i look at the credits to the when in rome album there are several people in the, you know just listed as drum programming or keyboards or brass arrangement like was this a very producer heavy so that it wasn't really just the three of you making the decision it was oh, no, producer the record company essentially yeah ben rogan was given carte blanche to it we, we threw everything at it let's put it this way what the money that we were given to do the album we spent it and we spent it well <laughs> <laughs> I guess we didn't spend it well in the end because I think we, there was just too much going on. And I think we got too lavish with the production as far as using different people. It's about four different keyboard players on it. There's uh, about three different guitarists. There was only really one track that had drum programming, and that was The Promise. Okay. And the rest of it was Preston Heyman from the Kate Bushes drummer and, and Phil Spalling from uh, Toya Wilcox band. So we used some really good players and it, it cost us a lot of money. So anything specific about this song, something going on? It seems like a challenging song here, just in that you've given yourself, we're going to use basically this doo-wop, this heart and soul progression. And we're going to do it in a way that's still going to be fresh. And you're going to be surprised by the time we get to the pre-chorus or something, because it's not just going to repeat this, do, 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 you know, do, it's a traditional song isn't it but a lot of people like it and, and the reason why i chose it is because it's my daughter's favorite song off the album and not many people play it everybody concentrates on the promise but there are some fun fun songs on on the album i do like it when people say that they they listen to the, the whole album and not just the promise
again, you've got this doo-wop thing to start, but because of the sounds you're choosing, this is the 80s electronica version. So you're already kind of violating, it's an interesting hybrid of stuff, right? Because it's very produced, it's very precise. Where there are guitars, they have these very controlled 80s sort of sounds, like really, really compressed or maybe super chorus for some of the swishy parts, but there's still elements. I mean, then you have horns come right back in. So you've got the, the actual 50s vibe. That was a proper horn section as yep. well, proper brass. There was actually a track that, that we did that was, was included on the UK version of the album. There was 11 tracks on the UK version. There's a track called Big City, and we used the uh, part of the London Philharmonic Orchestra and and that was an experience as well. I think that well, I've got to go back to the time when I was I was twelve and I was at school and I, they took us to see uh, the Halle Orchestra, which is the very big northern orchestra. They're based in Manchester. I went to see them at the uh, Free Trade Hall in Manchester, and that was my first experience of any kind of concert. And I was sat right in front of the bass, the cellos, and everything else, and it was cutting me right in. The, that's what gave me my classical thing. Now I, I was really into classical music from then on, and that was that gave me the spur to go on to pop music as well. And then when it came to doing the album, of course, we got a lot of classical influences on there, a lot of brass stuff clashing with the 80s stuff. The great story, the reason why we chose Ben Rogan to produce the album is the, the fact that Sade had just finished her album, uh, Smooth Operator. Uh, I forget what the album called, but Smooth Operator's yeah, on the, it. the popular one. The big album, yeah. the big Sade album we just recorded at, at uh, Power Plant. And we wanted Robin Miller, who was the producer of that album, to produce us. But he wasn't available because, of, of course, that was... It's called Diamond Life, the album. And he just finished that. And so it was in very big popular demand because that's... A st- I mean, if you listen to that album today, it sounds fantastic still. Because he wasn't available, we uh, asked his engineer, Ben Rogan, to produce our album. So, so it's the engineer that engineered Diamond Life. We used a lot of people that were on the Diamond Life album on, on our album. The brass section was the same, brass section. The extra piano players that we brought in were on that album as well. Talking of uh, something going on, you know, it, it was us doffing our cap to that era, that doo-wop era. Of course, one of the band members must have been into that at the time. Well, and just the dual vocal persona of the Sam and Dave sort of thing and having the horns, you know, it just is bringing more of that elements explicitly to the fore. So was it normally, you know, Andrew's doing the lower octave and you're doing the high octave? Is that kind of how it would? But then I noticed a lot and I even was you know, watching a, a recent live video of you that you do a lot of th- three part harmonies, given that this is supposed to be a duo band, right? Because <laughs> you're not satisfied with just having the low octave and the high octave. You have to then have the third above yourself that you're doing both of those. Well, you had your, what, you had a couple, the touring band at this time, did you have, you had a couple female vocalists to fill that spot out? Is that? Yeah, uh, I'm, the, I'm the keyboard player and, and Danny Dean. Well, Danny Dean on guitar, he would sing one of the harmonies. and Even back in the day, he, he was in the band or he's just in your current? Only the recent setup. For instance, that's the show that I went to on Saturday. All the big bands had the backup singer, you know, it just gives it that strength in the, in the choruses and stuff. I mean, it's just interesting that, you know, you've got this great, powerful voice but that you've described yourself as a reluctant pop star. So that you have this other singer that could kind of look like the front man, but really, I mean, you're working together or you seemed like you got a lot of the good parts, the soaring parts, the traditional lead parts, whereas he sounded like the guy from Simple Minds. It was like kind of the, so you could really cement that 80s. And I heard even, even your band before that, right? You had another low singer that was... Uh, Leisure. I managed to just find a couple of songs on SoundCloud before to hear what you know what you were doing in the early '80s and how that led into this interesting stuff. What made you put the bass down? It just wasn't cool by '88. I don't know why I put the bass down <laughs> because I, I guess with when in Rome, it was a very very weird situation because I wanted to be the singer. I wanted to be. I, I really loved being in the studio and recording and everything else, but I wasn't really into the going on tour and uh, meeting record company people and doing all the stuff that goes around with the business and everything else. And that was the reason why, I, I, mean, I don't know whether you know, that I announced on Facebook late last year that I was stopping for a while because I've got a 17-year-old daughter who still lives in the UK. And, and uh, of course, I'm away from her a lot because America is the place where we've had the hit record, the hits. Heaven knows was a hit here as well. It takes me away from my family, so I decided to stop touring for this year, concentrate on my family for a bit, and then come back later on in the year. We're doing the Dominican Republic in November, 
And there's a couple of things that we're doing in May that we've got to finalise. But I've, I've kind of cut down on that. But I've always been this reluctant pop star. I love singing. I love being in the studio. I love recording. And I, you know what? I got to like being the front man again. I mean, being on the, these last tours, mm-hmm. on my, I mean, I've, of course, I've done the solo tours without Andrew. And I've had to become the front man. And I, I enjoy it more now than I did back in the day because I can relax a little bit. I think we're one of those lucky bands that have just one hit. I think if, if we'd have had a few hits, we, we might have gone a bit stupid with it. But uh, I think we're, we're one of these lucky bands where I can go home and I can have a normal family life, if you know what I'm saying. Well, it's interesting that you've embraced it. I I'd read some article that you'd started to write a book of Confessions of a One-Hit Wonder. Is that right? Or something? That's been taken off the, oh. the shelf now. I won't go into the, the ins and outs of what was going on with our ex-keyboard player, but we were sued and everything else because he trademarked the name and... Uh, part of the process was taking the book off the shelf, uh, so it's no longer for sale. It's a true recollection of what happened with, with When in Rome. But, you know, I, I'm happy I wrote it. It's no longer available, but at least I got it off my chest. It'll come out someday. <laughs> <laughs> We're in an age, nothing can be kept secret. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I probably wouldn't be talking to you. We wouldn't know who you were if you hadn't had that one thing that reached us. But on the other hand, I find it interesting that independence, it sounds like you just kind of fell into this opportunity that you could do this. And so you did this. But I know that you've described even after that album, after uh, Michael had left the band, that you had kept writing. You've been writing well, at least on and off, even if you have a job. Are there 50 cassettes full of little whisperings of songs that have yet to be fully realized? Or where, where does the rest of the output go? I actually go back to the UK on Wednesday. And as soon as I go back, I start work with John again. So we'll, we'll be doing an Independence 2. Obviously, it'll be called something else. It'll be working with John again. And I'm, I'm going to be working with Mark Hall from Flip and Phil on an EDM project. I don't know whether you've heard any of the stuff that I've done with uh, Outlaw. That's more EDM style. Okay. Yeah, I listened to everything that was on your SoundCloud page. So that's quite a few projects in there from over the years. Yeah. And there's a couple of covers as well. And the reason why I did those covers is because they are some of my favorite songs from the time. I've always wanted to cover my favorite songs. In fact, that's one album that's yet that I'd like to do is a covers album of songs, my favorite songs from the 80s, well, 70s, 80s and 90s. Obviously, it's a totally different world in terms of making music now. Is it that your increased output is more just because the technology, the people, you know, this is available now to do without as much fuss. Whereas after you finish your one massive studio album, then like, well, I've got these other songs. What am I going to put them on my Tascam? Like what? (laughs) Well, I have that as well. You know, I have a little Tascam 8 track as well that I can do it. But of course, I'm into all the recording software. I'm kind of sponsored by PreSonus, the software and stuff and recently got into digital performer which is great for film and everything else so yeah it's just there it's very handy and and i can just it's just like dali used to have the easel at the end of his bed salvador dali had the his easel at the end of his bed so that he'd paint his dream stuff like that my stuff's just very much like that my with a little recorder it's like that you know you've got an idea in your head you, you just record it down onto your phone I don't think anything's changed in that respect because, you know, ideas are from your head. They're not actually from the software. Well, sure. But if you don't have a ready outlet, like I know, you know, when I have a functioning band, I'm more likely to actually write something because I know that I can have it realized in a fairly quick manner where if I'm going through a long dry spell and it's like, well... I could record a demo of this by myself, but it seems there's less, like, was it discouraging at some point? Like, did it cut down on your actual desire to write at some point? Yeah, so talking about, my daughter was born in 1999. We'd had the hit in 1988, 87, 88. It died up till 2004. So I, of course, I got a proper job. I worked at a hotel for 10 years doing what I love doing. I, I was event technology manager. I was looking after the PA systems and lighting and everything else because I like the technical side of music, you know. So I got a job doing exactly what I like doing, getting paid for it. The promise had done what it had done. And of course, then in 2003, I get a phone call out of the blue from our ex-keyboard player who's now living in Dallas. And he says they want to use the song in a movie. And uh, we didn't know what what it was, what movie it was at the time. And I didn't know what it was. I said, of course, yeah, absolutely. I was talking with Michael every other day throughout 2003. We did the deal with Napoleon Dynamite. 
it came out in 2004 and to everybody's surprise it was a it was a hit movie and then i never heard from michael again and he formed a band and kind of reaped the, the rewards of the movie if you like without and andrew and i knew nothing about we were five thousand miles away we knew nothing about what the movie was doing we didn't know how successful it was becoming when it was released it was only i'd say 2007 2008 when britain got to know about this movie it had already been very big in America and it took I still working at the hotel till 2010 even though my song was being used in a big hit movie and people at the hotel were saying wait a minute what are you doing working at the hotel when you got a big a song in a big movie I've got no idea I've got no clue what's going on and then it turns out that uh, unfortunately the name of the band had been trademarked and there was another band that was touring using the name and a guy with a shaved head as the front man and it, it kind of put me off for a bit. That that was the reason why I was not writing for a long time. Well, it's good that eventually, well, I noticed your, it's uh, Rome Never Fell is on your SoundCloud page. And, yeah. and formerly of When in Rome or something like that, or When in Rome UK, that you can, you're allowed to, it's certainly not unusual to have reading the, the story of sort of who all was touring as the birds for a while. Like, okay, it's just the drummer and some people, you know, that was, especially with bands in the 60s are an absolutely normal thing. That like, okay, we have somebody's heard of us under this name. And so we have to just, we have to clutch it. It's such a shame that people get like that. I mean, there was a case about Steppenwolf as well. The bass player wanted to say, uh, you know, former bass player of Steppenwolf. You know, he wanted to tour with his own band. And somebody in Steppenwolf said, no, you can't do that. So, so, uh, but I don't understand that mentality because I wouldn't, the other way around, if my ex-keyboard player wanted to say formally of when in Rome, Absolutely, you can say that because that's what you are. It's the truth. But in court, of course, it stands up that if you are formally of a band, you can actually use that. You know, you can you can say if you were, if it's the truth, then you can use it. But unfortunately, we, there's trouble around. Well, there's not so much anymore because we've agreed on Mike's version of the band being called When in Rome Two, and we're called Clive and Andrew of When in Rome UK, or original members of When in Rome UK. Well, and with the changes in information technology, like it's not that much of a leap from hearing, oh, when in Rome is playing to hearing the details. Whereas if it's the 80s and you just have your notice in the paper or whatever, I don't know, it just seems like it would be much, it's much easier to clear up these confusions and maybe not as much of an advantage. I mean, are you going to get double the people at your gig if you're billed as when in Rome as opposed to Clive from when in Rome? Eh, well, you know what? You, at this you, point... You, that, absolutely, I think that is the truth. And we've asked Michael to join the band again, you know, we've, because that would be the best case scenario, because we would all be called When in Rome. When in Rome sells better than Clive Farrington from When in Rome, Andrew Mann from When in Rome, Clive and Andrew from When in Rome, blah, blah, blah. When in Rome, the When in Rome brand. Sure, sure. And When in Rome 2, of course, doesn't. It sounds like the sequel. Hopefully, at least part of your purpose. I mean, of course, it's great that you get to do these big festival shows with the, these 80s throwback tours and that people remember that song. But Independence as an album, is it just objectively a better album? I'm sorry, than the original When in Rome album. Like, you've gotten better at your craft. It would make sense. And the fact that, you know, now you're on a, more of a roll, that you're back in, you know, and you're going to record this thing coming up. So it seems some folks, if they're a one hit, you know, band, and it's kind of, we're touring on the, just playing that song again and again. And, and I know other folks kind of use that as a, all right, well, that's great that you've heard of me because of that. And I'll play that song. Sure. As the encore or whatever. But what I really want you to do <laughs> is discover that I'm awesome. You know, <laughs> that I've written these 30 other songs that are very good. <laughs> So. Yeah, absolutely. And, oh, see, unfortunately, on, on an 80s tour, the promoter has a lot of say, and, and of course, they only want you to do the, the hit songs. But I have been slowly, slowly getting into getting shows myself without the need for a promoter to be in the middle. And then I do do the new stuff. Yeah, I was talking from Nick from uh, Cutting Crew, you know, because he has the same issue with Dieting Your Arms Tonight. That was like their giant single. And he said something like, you know, only about 10% of the audience will follow you from the thing that they're already familiar with to actually appreciating the rest of your work, which his new album sounds very little like that old thing at all. What's your take on that? No, that's a great thing. I know Nick really well. He's a really lo lovely guy. And, and uh, there was one song that he did in Mexico, and I covered it as well because I liked it so much. And, and that was uh, Being in Love Before. 
They did have more than one. In the U.S., it was more that one that persisted yeah. forever. But yes. You know what? Uh, Nick's a really, really nice guy. And I think what happens, it, like a lot of musicians, they try to go in a different direction and uh, because that's where they're, they want to do something different. They want to try something different, which, which is nothing wrong with at all. But, you know, if you've had a hit with Died in Your Arms tonight, it's very, very difficult to do when you've had that bit much. Of, it's like the promise. The Promise was as big a hit as that in the USA. Sure. It's very, very difficult to, to take that template. And that's why it's really hard to explain. It's difficult, but it sounds easy or it looks easy to be able to come up with another one that's like that and is just as big. I mean, it sounds like all you need to do is use the same chords, put different lyrics to it. Which they did. It's called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. That was the first <laughs> single from the second album. And it's very good that you guys didn't have a second album where you produced the equivalent of that song, which is, it charted here. You know, I saw it on MTV, but it was very obvious, like, oh, well, this is the same melody. Why even do that? That's, well, because the people, the record, you know, I didn't ask him about that particular, but I can see, I, I just feel like having a hit that's that big is a mixed blessing. It is. I think we probably like Cutting Crew. When in Rome, this is where it became three different people doing the, the record. I was really into that machine style music. I was, I was really into Gary Newman, I was into Howard Jones. I was always, I was into the machines. I was into Simple Minds. Cause the Simple Minds, before they became a big stadium rock band, were like a very, very similar to to Gary Newman. They, they were very machine-oriented. I was always into that kind of stuff, and that's why The Promise is like it is. Now, if going back without wanting to sound facetious or, or cheeky in any way, I think if I'd have been allowed to make it into a more of a machine-oriented album and, and all, all the tracks were programmed, I think it would have been a bigger album. I think we would have had some... The album would have sounded more cohesive. Yeah, it seems like Michael has has a certain interest in the sort of theatrical symphonic that there's a version of the promise that he's got with his new thing that is slower. You know, I know you've done alternate versions of the promise, too. You have one with strings. And it's at the same time, it's fun to hear this familiar song in a new idiom. But at the same time, something that's that drilled into your brain, that exact, <laughs> any change at all, the mind, as somebody who has had to perform it a million times, I could see definitely, oh, let's try it with a banjo. Let's try something else to fix it up. But uh, yeah, there's a reason. Well, let's just leave that sacrosanct. Let's just. But it was everything. It wasn't just that piano line at the beginning. It wasn't just the da 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 da. It was the. It was the the cap, the the cap. It was the it was the drum beat. It was the it was the it was the bass line. It was everything about the song. It was because it was a programmed song from start to finish. And I wish, I really wish, if I went back in time, I would actually program all of the songs on that album. Well, now you can. You don't have to go back in time. Absolutely no, absolutely. Yeah. No, I don't wish I could go back in time at all. I'd like you say, go forward and produce what you want to produce now. Yeah, because the whole mechanism of fame has more or less broken down so that I know there are still Taylor Swifts and there are still people that become huge, but it seems like it's, it's a very different landscape, of course, for better and for worse. And my daughter's into music as well. She makes music. She's a, a guitarist, songwriter, singer. And I don't push her towards doing it because I think the business is really really quite cruel I think once you've had your hit records I mean this is you know this is why we have multi-millionaire pop stars that are not really happy it's not great to be touring all the time and and you don't get a moment's rest you go to a hotel room on your own you get up in the morning you go to the next show you do your sound check you do the show in another hotel room in another country. It's not what it's cracked up to be when you've got that many hit records. Like, for, for instance, Taylor Swift. No wonder Justin Bieber goes off the rocks sometimes. They're just in demand every every moment of the day, you know, and they're not given to go back to the family. You know, it, it's uh, what once money's being made out of somebody. I've seen it. I've taken my daughter to see Justin Bieber, and they put him in this little cage thing, that, in the shape of a heart, of course, and he sat there playing a the guitar in this little metal cage. And they hover him above the audience. And there's somebody on stage, these two guys on stage. Does anyone want a piece of Justin? Does anybody want a piece of Justin? It's like, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. That's really why I'm not really into the industry, the business of it. I, I, lo I love songwriting. I love singing. I don't like that part of it, that the commodity part, you know, when, when an artist is used as a commodity. Well, it's interesting. It's the artist that's more of a commodity now than the recording because, you know, when 
in the sixties or, you know, the seventies when they were working artists like that, well, that means you would get an album a year out of them because they would throw them in a studio and say, okay, you have two months to make the next who album or whatever. And so at least if you're Taylor Swift, you get to take two years. The album has got to be really good. It can't just be the single with a bunch of things to fill it up. So maybe you you like, if you somebody like the Osmonds and stuff like that, and you know, it's weird the way it I mean, you can even fall out even if you're in a family, you know. I mean, Donnie and Marie Osmond tour separately to the Osmonds, and, and it's just a bit, it gets a little bit stupid where even if you're in a family and, and you're supposed to be the, the best of buddies and everything else, when money's involved, it's a bit crazy. The bands end up with, of course, enough money to live on for the rest of their lives, but the agents that are looking after them are making the 20% and want more out of them and more and more and more out of them. And unfortunately, a lot of them burn out. All right, well, let's throw out our last tune. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. So this last tune, I, I know it's listed as a 2016 single, Lost, parentheses, Driving at Night, but it sounds like this came from the same sessions. Yeah, it did. It came from the 2013 session with John for the Independence album. Oh, but then you're reunited with Andrew Mann on this one, right? Absolutely. Was that an afterthought or was he involved? I saw he wrote the lyrics with you. Sort of how did this one actually come together? Well, I wanted to do something as close as when in, to when in Rome as possible because mm-hmm. I've always thought Andrew's voice is fantastic. I, I love Andrew's voice and I wanted to, to have one song where he, he featured, if you like, wasn't used on the album because it wasn't, of course, the, the, the Independence album is a Clive Farrington solo album, mm-hmm. uh, but we wanted to do it to include Andrew. And it was written originally for me to be singing it, but I thought, you know, this one needs one of those baritone voices on it. So uh, we called Andrew from London. He came up, up for the weekend and we recorded it. And I love the song. I think it's one of it's one of my favorites. I, th- I think we could have included it on Independence, I think, and it wouldn't have sounded out of place. Well, I look forward to hearing the follow-up, the Independence 2. Or would this be slotted on there or would this just be a, a lonely single? That maybe, okay. maybe. We'll see how well it fits thematically with the rest. Well, cool. Thank you again. And thanks to your many bird friends. <laughs> it's a great backdrop isn't it i love it yeah yeah all right have a great rest of your day here is lost thank you mate
Thanks again to Clive Farrington. Super nice guy. You might associate electronica with something harsh and inhuman, but his whole approach, inspired from classical music, is just so melodic. If you look at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, at the blog post corresponding to this episode, I will link to another interview where he talks more about electronic music, about the circumstances surrounding the creation of The Promise in particular, which, as you can see, even though I didn't ask him about it, it kept coming back as just something that was absolutely central to his career and set a high watermark artistically for him. Again, if you want to hear many tracks... From the intervening years, it's soundcloud.com slash Clive-Farrington1, or just look up Clive Farrington or Rome Never Fell on SoundCloud. He also uses his Facebook page for a lot of music business sort of stuff. Might want to look him up there. I've got a lot of really good episodes recorded. I've been recording them at a much faster rate than I've been releasing them, so I can try to pick up the release rate for the next couple of weeks at least, because I cannot wait for you to hear all the good stuff that's coming, including the latest, an interview with Steve Hackett, guitarist from Genesis. But next up, I have one with Glenn Mercer from The Feelies, a band that if you haven't heard of them, you should go look them up right now. So I really hope you will help me spread the word about this podcast, share this episode, share our Facebook page on Facebook yourself, tweet about it, go to the iTunes store and leave a review. Even if you're not an iTunes user, it'll be really helpful. But more importantly, support the artists that come on and talk to me, check out Clive's Independence album, and keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. (laughs) 